Good morning. It is a joy to be with you. I've prayed for you this week, maybe as much as I've prayed at any one time for you. Always when we work through a topic that is as serious as depression, there's there's such a danger. Uh, someone who comes who's very tender-hearted and very broken uh, and and ready to receive needs only a few words, and others come with hardness and obstinacy and need many words. And the pastor's challenge is to come and to meet both of those needs and all in between at one time. And depression is such a tender and dangerous subject. And so when we speak today, I want you to know from my heart, I do not know all of the causes of depression I do not understand all the intricacies and the, and, and the responses to it. But I do know that the Lord cares about it and that in Psalm 73, He speaks of it in a most helpful way. And that His desire is that wherever you find yourself in this struggle, whether it is something that is self-inflicted because of decisions that you have made, or something that is health-related that maybe is just an imbalance in your chemistry, or something that someone has done specifically to you, or life has brought to you, that God wants to speak to you in all of those instances. And it's really scary as I preach about it, because Psalm 73 is particularly a psalm of repentance. That was the one thing that God worked in my heart in the last few weeks to understand this psalm and to understand repentance's role in depression. That's really tough because if our depression is tied to something that we didn't cause or participate in, it's really hard for us to think about, why do I need to repent in the midst of something that I didn't necessarily participate in causing. Now, so I want to give you an example so that you can receive it if you're here and and you're you're here today and, and you're in depression and, and you didn't have anything to do with how you got there. And, and I'm afraid that as I speak to you today, especially, and talk about repentance, how you may say, wait a minute, Bart is, is kind of, he, he may be getting on to me a little bit today, and I, I don't want to receive that or I don't need that. And so I want to just give you one illustration, and that is Job. Now, it's really hard to give an illustration of a person, one of the longest books in the Bible, uh, but, but, but we do need to take just a moment and think about Job. All that happened to Job, none of it was his fault. Zero. How much? Zero. In fact, it all came because God was bragging about Job and Satan came in with a false accusation about Job and said, you've just built a hedge around him. If you take the hedge away, he will surely deny you. God said, no, he won't. Satan says, well, prove it. And so God lowered the hedge around Job and gave access to his life to Satan, who came in 
and killed all of his children, killed all of his livestock, and destroyed his property and took away his health. God allowed that. It was not Job's fault. But in the middle of the book of Job, Job is called to repentance, not for his depression, but for his response to the depressing things that happened in his life. And so if you're here today and you hear me kind of talking directly to you about depression, and you hear me very clearly say that part of our responsibility in depression is a kind of repentance, I am not, by calling you to repentance, blaming you for your depression. Y'all good with that? Can you, can you track with that? I'm not, just like in Job, when God called Job to repentance, He did not say, Job, you're the bad guy here, or you're at fault for your depression. Remember, Job got so low that he wanted to die. He, he thought in, in, in kind of suicidal terms, not, take my, not, not I'm going to take my life, but somebody take my life. It was kind of like when you hear that story of... Um, the Lynx and the uh, Jerry Clower getting up in that tree to poke that Lynx out. And he gets up there and he thinks it's a coon and he pokes the Lynx and the Lynx turns on him and starts tearing at him. And he yells down at the guys on the ground. He said, shoot. The guy said, I can't shoot up there because I might hit you. He said, shoot anyway. Somebody's got to have some relief. That's where Job was. He would say, if, if you got to shoot and just take me out, I got to have some relief. And so when we talk about today, I don't want you to go away saying, well, here's what Bart said today. Bart said I'm all to blame because he's calling me to repentance. I, I'm not doing that. But I do believe that in order to be healthy, there is a kind of repentance needed in the midst of our depression that is called out in the life of Asaph that you and I can learn from today. And so here's how we've walked so far in Psalm 73, we started with the anchor. We saw that Asaph had a fundamental belief system, a worldview. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He is. And he said, that's the anchor. That's the thing that I cling to. But then he says right afterward, he made the admission and he said, but as for me, my feet came close to slipping. My steps had almost stepped, uh, uh, slipped. I'd almost left the path. He's talking about apostasy. He's talking about leaving following God. He's talking about walking away from the relationship that he has. And then we turned and we looked at his anxiety and how his focus was off and how he was looking only at his situation and not at the truth of God and his word. And as a result, he got disoriented in his feelings, disoriented in his understanding. Asaph got really twisted up in this point. We saw that it turned into anguish and angst where there was such pain that he really just wanted out or he wanted away from it. And there was such anguish that he questioned all of his belief system. And we saw that specifically in verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. So he came to the point where he says, I'm done. I'm done with the whole God thing. I'm done with the whole religion thing. 
Remember, Asaph is the worship leader for the nation of Israel. Uh, and so this is a big deal going on for this man who writes these psalms, who writes this music, who conducts and leads the nation in worship. And he's at that point. And then last week we saw the answer. God came to him and he met him where he was and he spoke to him and he answered him. And we saw that God's revelation provided beautiful answers for Asaph. But answers are not enough. Today is acceptance. That's the title, the acceptance. It's when Asaph personally embraces the answer. This is the transition from knowing a fact to resting in a truth. This is very important. It's the moving from here to here. It's that move from head to heart. It's that move from knowledge to will. It's that move from understanding to repentance. It is that taking and embracing truth as that which is now your comfort and your source. And so that's where we are today. And so we came to realize through all of what we've studied that what Satan specializes in is the destruction or diversion of a thing called hope. That's what he's all about. Satan wants to take you and either divert your hope so that it rests in temporal things or destroy your hope so that you are despairing and maybe even suicidal. That's Satan's angle. That's what he's after. And everything that we consider today has to be considered in a war. The war is a war for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. And the war for those souls is a personal war with a real enemy who is attacking human beings with all of the effects of the fall so that they will not give glory to God and have that be their comfort and their eternal hope. And so Satan is, he's a liar. He's a manipulator. He's a deceiver. He is the father of lies. He was a murderer from the beginning. Everything about him is deceitful. And so he is using the emotions and the experiences and the situations of human beings to turn them from God. And so when we come into Psalm 73, we see a man who's suffering under that. A man who has professed genuine faith in God, led people in worship, conducted the singing and the celebration and the writing of hymns to God. And now we see that man at the point in the middle of this war where he's ready to give up. And so now we step into the embracing of the answer. We're going to begin in verses 17 through 22. We're going to break that into three parts. Number one, Asaph's acceptance came as God revealed hope through clarity. This is an important word. When we suffer, when we are depressed, 
when we hurt, when we are disappointed, when we are wounded, when we are sorrowful, our vision of reality is clouded. Remember the illustration of the plane where outside the plane there was a gray sky with no clear horizon, but inside the plane there were very clear indicators of truth and how Robert F. Kennedy Jr. had looked out at the the, the lack of a horizon and followed his feelings and crashed his plane into the ocean and yet in front of him were very clear truths of where he was spatially in the air, where he was on the horizon, where he was in altitude, his airspeed, all of those things were there, but he was going based on his feelings and his feelings led him to crash. And so what God does for Asaph is he steps into his life and he gives him some clarity. In the middle of his pain and his suffering, his anguish, his angst, his anxiety, his vision is clouded. God steps in in letter A. I'm going to just give you a little catch words here so you can remember. First, clarity about the, T-H-E-E. This is our clarity about God. Now, the very interesting thing about Asaph's psalm is that God is present in verse 1, and He's not present again in Asaph's thinking until we get to verse 17. So all of the life that he conducted in verses 2 through 16 was without the clarity of God and His Word. Asaph was solely focused only on what he could visibly see and emotionally feel. And it confused him. Rather than going to God's Word and the clarity that it gives, Asaph was running his life on his emotions, his feelings, his disappointments, his anxieties, his anguishes, his angst. All of these things were directing his life. And they were directing his life without God. And so God is absent from verse 2 to verse 16, really to verse 17. He's absent. The only time he's mentioned is on the lips of unbelievers who question his existence. And so Asaph has been trying to navigate his suffering without the clarity of God's Word. Without the clarity of the Gospel truth without the certainty of what God has said. And my brothers and sisters, we're all guilty of this. It is not uncommon for us to begin hurting and start working through things without God. We start using our own reasoning, our own abilities, our own faculties, We start using the counsel of humanity. We start asking advice of those who are not giving us God's Word. And we start navigating difficulty without God. Now, my brothers and sisters, that's the problem in Asaph and in his psalm that he has this whole span of life that he recounts. We don't know how long it was, but he recounts it in the absence of God. And so what's happened is he's gotten very disoriented. 
so disoriented that he loses his way. And so it's a very serious thing. You and I go through periods of this. It's easy to point a finger at Asaph, but sometimes someone hurts us. Someone disappoints us. Some event comes to our life. And our first set of reactions are purely from our flesh and have nothing to do with the Word of God. And so there is a necessity to be called into a kind of repentance that brings God back into focus so that clarity can be given. And so God speaks to Asaph, gives him hope by clarifying himself to Asaph. It says in verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God, and he begins to put God back into the discussion. And you'll notice after this moment, God is present in Every single verse for the rest of the psalm, with the exception of verse 19, but he's implied there. So all of a sudden, what gives Asaph clarity is that he gets clarity about God. My brothers and sisters, this is Satan's ploy. He wants you to be unclear about God. In the garden of Eden, that was the one thing Satan did. He came to Adam and Eve, Eve first, and he made her unclear about what God had said and about what God would do. And when she lost the anchor of what God had said and what God would do, she became disoriented by the things she saw, that the fruit was pleasing to the eyes. And desirable to eat and desirable to make one wise. And she got disoriented about God. What God is always ever wanting to do for you through His Word, by His Spirit, and in His church is make Himself clear. This is important. And this is what Asaph finally comes back to. And it helps him greatly. So first, he gets clarity about thee. Thou, God, thee. And so he goes through and gets that as God is overlaid over his life and the life of the unbeliever. Letter B, he gets clarity about he. Who's he? He is the guy he's been talking about the whole time, the arrogant guy. He started talking about him in verse 2. Uh, excuse me, verse 3, for I was envious of him. He. He. Who's he? He's the guy who has no pains in his death. He's the guy who's going around mocking God, but rich. He's going around making fun of God, but healthy. He is the guy that's bugging me. And God makes things clear about he. This guy, this arrogant one who's mocking the unbeliever. Now, this is very... Um, integral to how this was resolved. Because in the beginning, Asaph was, Asaph was envious of this guy. This wicked man, this evildoer, this heir. He was envious of him. And he was thinking, man, I'd like to be like him. I don't, I, that's really what I want. He, listen, he is comfortable. And they, Asaph thought, wouldn't it be nice to be comfortable. But I want you to hear something very important. There's nowhere in the Bible that God wants you to be comfortable. It's not there. 
But everywhere in the Bible, God wants you to be comforted. There's a difference. This wicked man looked comfortable. Some people think that the gospel and God are kind of like a great big recliner. So that in this life you can be comfortable. Jesus never said that. In fact, Jesus said this. In this world, you will have tribulation. My brothers and sisters, that's not comfortable. But then he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Because he wants us to be comforted in the midst of our struggles. You see, here's the difference. And here's what Asaph came to understand. Um, As you watch two different kinds of airplanes and two different kinds of commercials, um, there's the commercial for this new luxury liner. I don't know if you've seen this thing, but it's this huge double-decker luxury liner. Boeing's building one, and uh, the other big company, uh, Airbus, is building one. And this thing's huge. It's hard to even describe how big it is. And this plane has all of these amenities, and the whole goal of this plane is for you to be comfortable in your flight. It tells about the kind of reclining seats and the leather. It tells about the dining area that you can go to. There's all kinds of things. And this thing is a transatlantic airplane. So you can fly 14, 15, 16 hours in this airplane. And the, the goal is that the entire flight will be comfortable. Okay? That's, that's how it's going to work. And so a lot of people think that's what Christianity is. That we're kind of on this flight to heaven and God just wants us to be comfortable every day of Friday, your best life now, and that God just wants you to be comfortable. That is not gospel. In fact, it's anti-gospel. Now, but there's another commercial that's a little more like it. It's the be all you can be. We do more before 9 a.m. than most people do all day, Army commercial, where you have a bunch of airborne rangers, and you're in the plane with them in the commercial, and you're, and you're watching the commercial, and it's this, little, it's this neat little commercial, and you see them all sitting in the floor of the airplane, and they got this great big parachute on them, and the parachute's hooked to this cable up here, and they're all sitting there, and they're waiting to jump out of the airplane. And all of a sudden in the, in the commercial, you see them start jumping out of the airplane, and these guys are just out, and you see the tether rope pull their chute, and you see their chute open, and they're going down, and it says, be all you can be. We do more before 9 a.m. Listen, it never says anything about being comfortable on that plane. But it does say this. There's one comforting thing, and that is that you have a parachute. Because you're not going where this plane is going. you got to get out of it. Listen carefully. The gospel is not a recliner that you sit in on an aircraft journey that makes you comfortable. The gospel is a parachute. This world is going to hell. And you're going to have to bail out of it at some point. And bless God, if you don't have the parachute of Jesus on you, you are ruined. And parachutes are never comfortable. But those who ever jump out of planes know that they're comforting. 
The gospel is not for you to be comfortable. The gospel is for you to be comforted. This world is coming to an end. It is going to be judged. It is going to end abruptly at the time God has set. And you are going to have to bail out. And your one comfort is that Jesus Christ is your parachute who will save you from certain death. And while you're sitting in your seat waiting, it will not be comfortable, but it will be comforting to know He will save you. My sin, oh the bless of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That's comforting. But in this world, it will never be comfortable. And so what's happening is that Asaph is realizing that the clarity is that God has called him to be comforted, not comfortable. Finally, clarity about me. Let her see clarity about me. Asaph saw what a sinful wretch he was in his response to the depressing things and how in the depression he had turned to things other than God. And he said, I became I became ignorant, and, and he just lays it out. Look in verse 22. I was senseless. I was embittered. Verse 21. I was like a beast. And he's, he's admitting that his response to these things was not to overlay God over all this, but to simply assess the situation based on how well sinners were doing. And he started to desire to be like sinners. And he lost his focus. And the repentance is when he sees, I should have had God in the equation all the time. So, he gives an illustration here that I think you and I need to kind of lay hold of to take home. Look in verse 20. I want to read through it with you and then I want to explain the fundamental idea behind it. Remember that he's talking about the unbeliever, the person who has walked away from God, who doesn't serve God, who doesn't love God, who doesn't treasure God, the one who is not in relation to God through true faith and repentance. He says, like a dream when one awakes. How many of you ever had a dream that you wish would keep going? Has that ever happened to you? Give me a this if that's ever happened. Okay, I'm not a stranger to that. Okay. Have you ever woken up and thought, if I could just finish that dream? You know what I'm talking about? I've actually tried to go back to sleep and get the dream. Have you ever done that? I actually went back to sleep one time and actually followed through with the rest of the dream. It's pretty cool. And dreams are neat. They're very emotive. They're very awesome. And, and, and specifically, if it's a really good dream, and you're like, you wake up, and, and remember how fresh the dream is when you first wake up? It's even creating emotions. Have you ever cried after a dream? Have you ever just been really happy after a dream or had emotion? And it's like, wow, that was awesome. But what happens kind of by the end of the day or the next day with that dream? It kind of fades, doesn't it? And the further away from it, the, the more it fades. This is awesome what he says here. He's describing the life of the unbeliever as very pleasant. They're fat because they're eating other people's food. They're happy and they're rejection of God. They're healthy. They got money. And he says, listen, 
for them. This entire life, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, they're going to wake up from one day. And it's going to be like it was a dream. And they're going to wish they could have kept it going. They're going to wake up from it. But listen to what he says when they wake up, what will happen. Verse 20, Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when they are aroused, You will despise their form. They're going to wake up and their eternity and their reality will be a nightmare. And their dream will be a faint memory of a brief encounter with good. And they will wake up And when they wake up, they will wish the dream could have kept going. They would wish that they could go back to sleep and get it back. But they can't. Because now they are awakened into eternity and God looks at them and He despises them. And the only thing they will know for all of eternity is the despise of God. So that all that they had here on earth is going to be a brief, momentary blip in eternity. Like a dream, a good dream you had one time, but you can't have it back. Listen carefully. Some of you are saying to me right now, Pastor Bart, my life's been a nightmare. What do you have to say about that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the opposite is true for the believer. You see, when I was a child, I used to have horrible nightmares. Horrible nightmares! They were vicious. It was this monster. It was like an alligator, kind of dinosaur, Satan figure. Think about that. This was before crazy cartoons. I just came up with this on my own. And I would dream that what this critter would do is sneak up on me and do the one thing that I hated. He would close my mouth so I could not call for help. And he would hold me hostage in my nightmare by stopping me from doing the one thing that could help me from crying out. And so I would have horrid, long nights in these nightmares. And they were terrible. And so what would happen is, I would finally start to wake up, and and the, the grace of waking up would finally start coming to me. I would do the only thing that I could do in that moment. I would just go, ah! And I would start screaming at the top of my lungs. And I would hear my dad's feet running across the floor of the house as he got up out of his bed and came. And his feet, big six foot two dad, coming through the hallway, opened the door and scooped me up in his arms and hold me to his chest where the only thing I could hear was the heartbeat in his chest. And he would begin to sing to me. And he would walk back down the hallway and he would sit down in his recliner and he would begin rocking me and he would begin singing to me. Listen to me, those of you who are in the nightmare of a hard life. There is a day coming 
When you will awaken from it and you will cry out and Jesus will come and get you and He will sweep you into His arms and all of eternity you'll hear His heart beat and He will sing over you. And the worst things that have ever happened to you will be like a nightmare you had one time. And the further you get away from it, the less you remember, the less it scares you the less it makes you afraid. That's the reality for the believer. And so what is God doing here? He's giving clarity. Close this up. I need to tell you two more things. And they're super sweet. Number two, Asaph's acceptance came as God revealed hope through sufficiency. This was what was amazing in this picture that God, though he is not going to take Asaph out of his suffering, just like he didn't simply take Job and say, "Okay, now we're just going to undo all this. Just like he didn't take Paul out and say, I'm going to make you comfortable. He left him in that and he suffered with it. But God is going to give four things to us. 23a, nevertheless, I am continually with. Thee. God first gives us company. This is glorious. God's sufficiency is that He actually wants to keep company with you right now where you are. He will be there. That is His promise. So that right in the middle of wherever you are today, God's keeping company with those who trust Him through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That even includes when we're complete idiots. If God had forsaken me when I was a complete idiot, He'd have been absent most of my life. But He is with me. And He, in His sufficiency, is going to keep company with me. Second, letter B, He makes contact with me. Listen to the sweetness of this. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand. There's something about holding hands. When I met Sherry, I loved her. It was like from the word go. I loved her before she even knew who I was. I was crazy about her. And so I, in all my smoothness, and I've never been smooth. I tried to, you know, all the things. Finally, I, I got, I, I met her at a dance. And and neither of us liked dancing, and so we walked back to the dorm, uh, and and sat and talked out in the the lobby of the dorm, and and I asked her out, and and there was something about all of the friendship that began, but there was this moment, and she's not here today. She's sick. She's got a nasty cold, and I wish she could just come up here. But there's something, Sparky. Come here. Come here. There's something about handholding. Y'all know what I'm talking about? When somebody says, come on. Come on. There's a close, there's, there's, a, there's a contact. You can sit down, Sparky, thank you. God makes personal contact by holding your hand. He loves you that much. I remember when Sherry's hand first touched mine and the joy of that relationship. Through Jesus, God is holding the hand of every follower of Jesus. And let me tell you something. He's not going to let go. The Bible says that neither height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. 
He's a hand-holding God. Third, he says here, letter C, is counsel. His counsel. In, 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 and I want to speak to this tonight. Tonight I'm going to talk about in our pursuit of holiness. I wish all of you would come, even if you're not in the pursuit of holiness, because tonight I'm going to talk about what repentance looks like from Isaiah 30. But there's this glorious moment in Isaiah 30, and we studied it in Bible school. It says, your teacher will make himself clear to you, and he will speak to you, and you will hear your teacher saying, this way is the way. Walk in it. Go to the right. Go to the left. This is the way. Walk in it. It'll be your teacher's voice. God is not just interested in keeping you company and making contact with you. He's taking you somewhere. His counsel is guiding you. Where? Oh, this is the great part. Look at this. Thou will guide me with thy counsel. Verse 24. And at the end... Letter D, consummation. This is when it all comes together. With thy counsel thou wilt guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. God is going to take me out of this mess. He is going to deliver me from this earth. And He is going to bring me to see Jesus. Now that is good. And that's my hope. And so this is how God is working in me, as I put him back in the equation in my thinking, in the midst of my depression, in the midst of my anxiety, in the midst of my anguish, and I lay God over all of that, and I see it all through the framework of who he is, what he's done for us in Christ, and where he's taking us, it changes me. So we close. Number three, and here we go. Asaph's acceptance came as God revealed hope through satisfaction. Listen carefully. All sin is a statement of dissatisfaction with God. And if you have sinned, you have simply stated you're not satisfied with who God is and what He's done for you. And so all sin is a statement of dissatisfaction with God. God wants you to be satisfied in Him in such a way that it protects you from sin. So He does things in four ways. And and they're not on the screen. I mean, not on your outline, but they're on the screen. Go ahead, Lynn. Letter A, satisfaction of desires. Look in verse 23. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. God can bring you to the place, listen, where you can be so satisfied with Him that it protects you from sin. You see, God is not a God of no. God is a God of yes. He's not just out there trying to be sort of a killjoy, a cosmic killjoy. Actually, God says no to the things that bring joy that will kill you. And he says yes to the things that bring joy that will bring life to you. God is interested in your joy in him. And he has done everything so that he may maximize it. God wants to satisfy your desires. So he wants to turn your desires to him. Besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. That's where God wants you to get to. He wants to break you of all the false desires so that you can have the real desire. So that all the other desires fall under that in their proper order. Then He does something even more. He gives satisfaction in weakness. Look in verse 26. 
My flesh and my heart may fail. I loved it. We were singing it today. Christ hath regarded my helpless estate. My brothers and sisters, the reason we fall into sin is we are so stinking helpless. And if we're counting on our flesh to sustain us with our oomph, and we're counting on our heart and our emotions to sustain us with, with all of our desires, it won't happen. We find ourselves lacking and we find ourselves biting the dust because we were trying to do it ourselves and oomph it ourselves. What does he say in verse 26? But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What is he saying? God has the capacity to make you satisfied with him even when you are so weak that you can say, Christ hath regarded my helpless estate. You see, God is glorified by giving grace to undeserving sinners. Helpless, unworthy, godless sinners. He is magnified, saving us in the midst of that. And so, He gives satisfaction in weakness, letter C. He gives satisfaction in reliability. How is He reliable? Well, He's the rock. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And the word strength there means the rock of my heart. He's reliable. If I trust Him, He will never come up short. He will never fail me. And finally, satisfaction in purpose. Now listen, you're here today and you've blown it or you have sinned, or you have been depressed, or your testimony has been weakened, and something has happened, and the result of it is that you feel the weight of all of your weakness, the weight of all of Satan's temptations, or or the failures, or the, the slipping, or whatever it was that is described here. I almost left the path. You feel that. Listen carefully. When... Asaph was finished. In verse 28, he said something. He said, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all thy works. Very few people know the darkness of the fall the way that people who have had catastrophic failure and catastrophic depression. Very few people know the kind of taste of bitterness, of gall, and desire for death. Very few people know it like those who have gone through it. Asaph went through. And God purposed or repurposed His suffering. So that after Asaph went through all of his failure, all of his struggle, all of his depression, all of his anxiety, and he got to the very end of it, he wrote a psalm. And God put it in the Bible. Because Asaph's purpose in his own weakness and failure was not to prove himself right but to show the mercy of God on sinners. So that what happened to Asaph 
could now be a comfort to someone like you. Join me as we close in 2 Corinthians 1. Okay. Listen to these words of your role in coming through depression, coming through failure, coming through all of these things. Listen to your role. Remember, I shared with you what Satan wants to do with witnesses. He wants to taint them so nobody will believe them, turn them so they'll speak for Satan's part rather than God's, or terminate them through suicide. But God wants to do the opposite. He wants to take witnesses who have been recipients of His amazing grace and let them become spokesmen and spokeswoman for the glory of God in comforting sinners with the Gospel. So, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we... We who, we who have been comforted in affliction, may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. In other words, here's what God is doing in your suffering, your failure, your anxiety, your depression. Here's what He's doing. He's making you a conduit of comfort and hope. Because if you who have sunk so low in depression can come out trusting God in the midst of it, if we who have sunk so low in sin can come out praising God for His grace and forgiveness, then what we do is we get to commend that to people who are suffering as testimonials of the goodness and grace of God. So what was God doing in Asaph's situation? He was setting him up to write a song that we've been reading for 2,500 years. And we have been drawing it into our hearts. The story of a man who got so depressed he wanted to leave God in the middle of his depression saw the good purposes of God, trusted Him. God said, write this psalm. There will be billions after you that will need your story. But it didn't end there. In your depression, in your failure, in your sin, in your lack, in your weakness, God is writing a story. And through your life, He's going to publish it. So that somebody who's coming after you, who may not make it without it, will hear your story and be saved. And one day you'll stand in heaven with him or her or them, and they'll be able to look at you and they'll say, Thank you for telling the story of God's 
redeeming grace in the midst of your failure, in the midst of your depression, in the midst of your anxiety, in the midst of your struggle. Thank you. How many people will look at Johnny Erickson Tata who has ridden her wheelchair for the sake of the Gospel and will look at her one day in all that she suffered and say, Johnny, thank you. Thank you. And some of you are here today and you have been crippled by depression, crippled by sin, and you may be in the wheelchair of your failure or your struggle the rest of your life. But let me tell you, God has a story to tell through you. It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of amazing grace, amazing love, amazing redemption, amazing purpose where He takes you and He says, I'm going to put you to use. And you will give me glory even in your struggle. Even in your failure. Even in your darkest hour. I will use you. And so what I want to call you to is repentance. Where you in the midst of whatever it is you face will lay the Gospel of Christ over your situation and trust that God is there if you are not